Our sermon today is taken from Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 35. Uh, so please follow along as I read for us from Luke chapter 7, verse 18 to 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many peoples of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is God's word. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Now Pastor Ian will preach uh, from this text for us. So let's prepare our hearts to receive the Word of God. I want to welcome you to our third week of the COVID circuit-breaking service. This is a new experience for all of us, and I want to just spend a moment to thank those who are serving us. Though they have full-time jobs, they are helping us with AV work. We have no professional AV team. So these dear brothers are just volunteering sacrificially of their time. So thanks to Eugene for all the work stitching our service together. Thanks Lup Meng. Thanks Ben Wee for your work. And of course, thank you Pastor Eugene for leading our service this morning and Belinda for leading us into worship. We're returning this morning to Luke chapter seven as we continue in our theme of radical dependence and this morning, we're looking at the topic, redefining leadership. 
And before we begin to look at the text, I want to invite us to bend our hearts toward the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so grateful that your word is reliable. It's reliable today as it was yesterday, and it will be forever. We come to you because events in our world have made it necessary for our hearts to be recalibrated, reshaped by the strength of your word. So wherever we are listening, Father, I pray that we would have a sense that we are finding your pleasure as we bend our hearts toward you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin to tell you a, a story about a, a, a young lad from the UK. His name was Pete, and he really only had one thing he wanted out of life. He just wanted to play in a rock and roll band. Now, I think that's a fairly common uh, ambition for many uh, young people, particularly if you grow up in the West. That's an ambition for a lot of young guys. It was for me as well. But for Pete, this wasn't just an ambition. He felt like it was his calling. He had no plan B in life. And his name, Pete Best, was just made for the big lights. He and his buddy, Richard, would gather in his mom's basement. Uh, above, on the first floor, his mom ran a coffee shop in, in the basement every single day as soon as they got away from school. Pete and his buddy Rich would get in the basement and bang away on the drums. They played and played and played until they both thought they were pretty decent. At the same time, three other lads from the town were coming into their mom's coffee shop and just doing a kind of a live mic. They would play with their guitars. They would sing. They were kind of a folk band, but they didn't have a drummer. And so they invited Pete, hey, why don't you join our band? And we'll become a foursome. And so it was actually Pete's drumming that changed this threesome, first of all, into a foursome, but also from a folk group into rock and roll stars. And after two years of hard slogging, over 40 international shows, they finally got the big record deal they were all hoping for, and they were signed. They recorded their first album, and Pete was living his dream until 1962, when their manager came in and said to him, the lads want you out. What want me out? I mean, of course he was wondering, well, why do they want me out? Well, there was a bunch of reasons. He wasn't, you know, funny enough. His hair was too curly. It didn't look like the mop they were shooting for as a group. It wasn't the look they were after. He, you know, he was great at shows. The girls loved him, but he didn't hang out after the shows. He didn't do drugs to keep himself going. And they just said, you know, great in shows, not great in the studio. We need to change our drummer. And for some odd reason, all that Pete could think to ask was about his friend Richard. And so he asked his manager, hey, um, does Richard know? And the manager said to him, yeah, um, Actually, he's changed his name to Ringo, and he's playing drums this Saturday. Now, you probably know the rest of the story. Pete's band, The Beatles, went on to become the biggest selling artists in music history. 
And Pete was left devastated, deeply disappointed. The Beatles went on to fame and fortune, but Pete went on to commit suicide or at least attempt. He survived. He was never, ever the same. Now this morning, I'd just like to ask you this question. Have you ever been deeply disappointed? I mean, have you ever encountered the kind of disappointment that just changed the course of your life, that, that left you feeling like your dreams were crushed, left you feeling betrayed, perhaps even abandoned by God? Well, friend, I honestly hope so. I hope so, because if you have been deeply disappointed, if you have felt crushed and abandoned and betrayed, then perhaps you will be better able to identify with one of the greatest men ever born of woman. When we last heard of Jesus' cousin John, you may recall that he was calling Jews to demonstrate their repentance by being baptized, by demonstrating their obedience to return to God by enduring water baptism. And in doing so, John set the table for Jesus' ministry. He prepared hearts for the faith that would follow. And you may also remember he was specifically committed to a ministry of diminishing returns. Perhaps you might recall in John chapter 3, he chided his disciples for being jealous of Jesus' ministry. And he said, hey, I'm the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him and rejoices greatly at his voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Jesus must increase and I must decrease. In our series, when we last heard from John, he had decreased so much, he was barely worthy of a mention. In Luke chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, he was making many other exhortations. He preached the good news to many people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John, for all the evil things he had done, made it worse, added to them all by locking up John in prison. And now, four chapters later, John the baptizer is still languishing in prison. And that joy of his, once fully complete, was now greatly diminished. And that's the problem with faith, right? It's easiest to have it when you don't need it. Faith requires us to believe in advance for what can only be seen in reverse. So let's take a moment and look first at John's disappointment in Luke chapter 7. Verse 18 says this, The disciples of John reported all these things to him. Now, dare I ask what things? Perhaps you were with us last week. Perhaps then you remember the great crowds. They followed Jesus everywhere he went while John was alone in prison. 
Perhaps you remember the foreigner whose faith Jesus praised, whose faith Jesus said, listen, I haven't seen any of that in Israel, even though John, his cousin, was in prison for his faith. Perhaps you even remembered the widow whose living son was returned to him. And so in response to all these things, John calls two of his disciples to him and sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one? Are you the one we're waiting for? Are you the Messiah? Or should we look for another? So John was looking at his ministry, Jesus' ministry, through the lens of his jail cell. And as he sat there, he began to wonder, did, did I just waste my life? Was I, was I wrong about Jesus? And maybe friend, wherever you are watching from right now, you are looking through Jesus' ministry to you, through the lens of a circuit breaker cell. Maybe you're full of anxiety. Maybe your joy is greatly diminished. Let, let, let me caution you. Because sometimes we allow our religion to rob us of authenticity. Disappointment comes and we're taught to dismiss it because if we're disappointed, we might not have the faith we feel like we should have. And so we learn to sanctify our disappointment. When someone asks us during this COVID crisis time, how are you doing? And I say, well, I'm keeping my head above water by the grace of God, I'm grateful that God's word never tries to talk around trouble. Disappointment was real. Sanctifying it was not the way of the great men of faith in the Bible. For instance, Elijah, cried out to God and said, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm not any better than my ancestors. And you may remember Job. Job who cried out, I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free reign. I'm going to let go my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. And David, what prophet is it? in my death, speaking to God. If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will the dust tell of your faithfulness? Even Jesus cried out to God, my soul is deeply grieved, grieved to the point of death. This is one bold message of the Bible in these days. We can cast our doubts at God. So if you're struggling with deep disappointment this morning, you are in good company. And the good news is you can throw it at God. You can throw at God your grief and your anger, your disappointment, your doubt, your bitterness, your betrayal. God receives them all. Philip Yancey has written a wonderful little book called Disappointment with God. He says this in that book, 
God can abide every human response save one. And ironically, it's my go-to response. Whenever I'm depressed or, or in trouble or in difficulty, I act like he doesn't exist and I begin to do everything humanly possible to work my way out of it. God can abide every human response save that one. Any attempt to ignore him in disappointment, to treat me, treat him as he does not exist in difficulty, that response is not a response that ever occurred to a man like Job. So let me say this. First, are you not amazed that when Jesus heard this report of John's greatly diminished joy, are you not amazed when he heard about his doubt that he did not respond with condescending religious instruction? He didn't say, John, you should read the prophets more. John, you should not forget God is alive and well. He simply responded because surely, surely it was Christ himself who inspired David to write these words in Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Now I've mixed up my slides a bit, but second, I wonder if you see what Jesus is doing here. He's pointing John to the messianic passage of Isaiah chapter 61. He's reminding John of his Nazareth sermon when Jesus stood up in the synagogue and read from Isaiah 61. We told that story in Luke 4, remember? When he read from the scroll the signs that would accompany the coming of the Messiah. In Luke chapter 7, he reminds him. He sat down and said, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, but, but John, look. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have heard good news. But, but notice how it's different in John 4. Can you tell? Might John have heard something that was not there, that was in Isaiah 61, that was also in his passage in Luke chapter 4? Why, Jesus, are you not mentioning liberty to the captives? Why now not liberty to those who are oppressed? Why, when I'm in prison, have you not fulfilled that promise? Sooner or later, the young elders in our church are going to discover John's leadership lesson. Because secular leadership, it's awesome. Um, secular leadership is leveraging influence to get others to do what I think they should do, to go where I think they should go, to think what I want them to think. I want to be a Steve Jobs kind of pastor. You know, the, the kind of guy that, that tells people what they want and then sells them, just pitches them what they want. I mean, the Steve Jobs prophets, they're awesome. They're, they're popular. Those prophets generate customer loyalty. The Apostle Paul, though, knew about Christ-like leadership, not secular leadership, but Christ-like leadership.
in Romans chapter 8, he says this, For your sake, we are being killed all day long. This is the death of us. Our young elders are going to notice this sooner or later. They're going to notice this. This leadership is killing me. Why? Because he must increase and I must decrease. I'm not sure if you noticed, I skipped a verse. In verse 23, Jesus had one more message to his cousin John the baptizer. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. That word offended is the Greek word scandalizo. Of course, we get our English word scandalized, but that word means something a little bit different for us than what it meant in secular Greek. In secular Greek, that word scandalizo meant tripped up. Blessed are those who are not tripped up by me or trapped by me. But in the New Testament Greek, that word scandalizo always meant sin. John, blessed are those who don't sin because of me, because of discovering that I went to the cross, not just so that people could be saved, but so that Christian leaders would know the sacrifice of obedience, what it looks like. Blessed are those who, when disappointment exposes the idols in our hearts, when it exposes the secret ambitions of my heart, when they begin to leak out, blessed are those in those moments when I grieve, that I don't grieve to the point of sin. And then Jesus begins to give John's eulogy. I want to thank many of you for the messages of comfort that you have sent me. Because you've heard today, my dear sister Carol was called home to be to the Lord. Um, Carol was the first believer in the Baptist work in Kuching. She has been in our home in Canada for over 40 years. She had great plans to care for her family, not just in Canada, but especially in Malaysia and in Singapore. She sure never had a plan that involved stomach cancer. In disappointing days, there is still a eulogy to be given. That word eulogy comes from the Greek word eulogia. It means praise. This morning, one of Carol's nephews is going to share a word of praise about his auntie. And here is Jesus' word of praise about his cousin, John the Baptizer. After recalibrating John's expectation for Christian leadership, he now gets ready to crush the crowd's expectation for Christ-like followers 
And he does so in verses 24 through 26 by asking the same question three times. What did you go out to see? Three times in verse 24, he asks, did you go to see a shaking reed in the wilderness? Now, I know a lot of Bible commentators will say, hey, a shaking reed, that's like a swaying reed. He's meaning, did you go out and see a man swayed by every wind of doctrine? No, that's not the word. The word shaking is different than swaying. It's when the wind catches a leaf or a reed just a certain way, and instead of swaying, it just quivers. It's a euphemism in first century language for a shiny object. Did you go and be entertained out in the wilderness? And then in verse 25, he says, did you go see a man dressed in soft clothing? Obviously, that was not John. What he means is, did you go seeing a man enjoying the benefits of his office? Is that what you look to see? Or did you go see a prophet? Someone who could tell your future. Someone who could tell you when finally Israel would claim its throne again from Rome. Is that what you went to see? Yes, you did. He was a prophet and yet more than a prophet. Here is Jesus praising that fragile, doubting John. He was more than a prophet. He was my messenger. Now, what is the difference between a prophet and my messenger? Prophet is someone living on earth who has heard from God and speaks forth God's word. He speaks for God. But messenger is the Greek word angelos, angel. Someone who has heard the words of God in person, in glory. My messenger is the Hebrew name Malachi, the angel whom I have sent to walk in your midst, to prepare the way for my Messiah. And yet he says in verse 28, I tell you, there is no one born of women who is greater than John. And yet one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What? Why, after this unusual praise, not just a prophet, but God's very messenger, an angel of the Lord walking on this planet, speaking forth his words, and yet someone who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Why? Because though it is great to prepare the way of the Lord, it is far greater to participate in the ways of the Lord. Though it is great to announce the coming rule of God, it is far greater to participate in the rule of God in our lives. 
I want to close with a quick word about John's audience in verses 29 through 35. And just to be clear, this is John's audience. It is Jesus' audience. It is our audience. And at one time, yes, it was us. Here we see in verses 29 through 30, when all the people heard this, the, the tax collectors also, they declared God is so just. Why? Because they had been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Why? Because they were not baptized by John. We have this condition in these dark hearts of ours to feel greater value if we value the product of someone's ministry that we have responded to. So I will just say there are some in our church who believe that God sanctions their choices just like the tax collectors did, just like the crowds did. We believe that, right? If our ministry exposes our choices as being good, then that's a good man who brought it to us. You know, some of us have been the product of not John the baptizer, but Paulson the baptizer. A few of you have been the product of Ian the baptizer, or Ollie the baptizer, or Eugene the baptizer. If we feel good about who baptized us and feel that somehow sanctions us more than others, then it says something about our hearts that Jesus was not praising. In verse 31, he says, so what then? Shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? That term, this generation, is special language. It's Exodus language. It refers specifically to people wandering about in a wilderness, a real wilderness or a metaphorical wilderness with a loss of memory, no memory that in this wilderness, in this difficulty, in this darkness, there is a God. He is a God who cares, who sees us. They have no memory of his provision. That generation is like this. Verse 32. They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another. We played the flute for you. And you did not dance. We sang a dirge. You did not weep. Jesus is describing a generation that is completely out of sync with the message of God. And so with the man of God. You Christians are sad when we karaoke and you sing at funerals. What is wrong with you? The message is incomprehensible. The messenger is despised. Jesus is warning John to not grieve at rejection. 
but to see it as vindication. For he said in verses 33 through 34, John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he's crazy. He has a demon is the first century way of saying the 21st century dismissal. You're crazy. The son of man came on the other hand eating and drinking, and you say, look at him. He's a glutton. He's a drunkard. He hangs around with sinners. Jesus reminds John. He reminds Ian. He reminds all of us. Rejection is a part of a holy assignment. Remember Isaiah in chapter 6. He has just realized he's in the presence of an almighty holy God. And he cries out in grief. He says, Oh God, I'm a man of unclean lips and I serve among a people of unclean lips. God brings holy coal of fire, cleanses him, says then, who will I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah raises his hand. He says, here my Lord send me. Well, but, but Lord, what's, what's the assignment? Here's the assignment. Isaiah, make the heart of this people dull. Make their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then Isaiah cried out, how long, Lord, how, how long do I have to do this? And God responded and said, until their cities lie wasted and ruined without inhabitants, houses without people. Until the land is a desolate waste, the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of their land. In other words, Isaiah, until the darkness is dark, until the disappointment is deep, until all their efforts to be their own God have failed them, John, God's messenger, Jesus, God's Messiah, grace, God's gathered flock, you will speak to the same dull, dead audience. But in verse 35, he closes with this message of hope. Wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom is borrowed from the book of Proverbs. Wisdom is the gospel personified. She cries out in the streets. And how is wisdom justified? Wisdom is justified by her children. The wisdom of God is vindicated. The word of God is vindicated by its fruit. And friends, that is the miracle of the gospel that comes to cold, dead hearts and awakens it from nothing. Life springs forth. From darkness, light comes. From arid wilderness, living water begins to flow. I'll be honest, every time I go back to Vancouver, it's hard not to judge just, you know, a little bit because my hometown is just so dark. I mean, they have streetlights, but it's 
old technology, the lights are not that bright. And when it rains, it's so stressful to drive at night because I just can't see the edge of the road and I can't see where the lines are. And so I'm stressed out all the time. But in Singapore, the government loves me. The government takes such good care of me. The roads are so well lit. In fact, in Singapore, I wake up at two in the morning and think it's 7.30 because it's never really dark in Singapore. So relaxed when I drive. I'm seldom troubled. In Singapore, life is so comfortable until about six weeks ago. Sometimes I realize life with all that artificial light has caused me to miss something. Annie Dillard is a Pulitzer Prize winning author and she has written this lovely little book, Teaching a Stone to Talk, in which she says, you do not have to sit outside in the dark if, however, you want to look at the stars, you will find that darkness is necessary. But the stars themselves neither require nor demand it. My friends, God neither requires nor does he demand that we notice it. But sometimes, he allows us, as he did John, the opportunity to sit for a moment in the dark and then to look up. And it's in these darkest moments that we can notice him. It is when he allows the infrastructure of support that we ourselves have created to fail. And maybe this morning, you find yourself a little bit like John, a little bit like your pastor, frankly, sitting in the dark, looking through the cell of circuit breaker measures, feeling isolated and wondering, God, are you there? Maybe you need to throw something at God too. Maybe you need to throw your doubt at him. Maybe you need to throw your questions, your disappointment, some anxiety. Just throw it at him and leave it with him. We began our service this morning with a reflection question. And I would like for us to end as well, pondering a few thoughts. If you're with your family, I'd like you to share these thoughts together. Perhaps you're by yourself. Maybe you'd like to journal them. Just write yourself a note. Dear God, this is where I'm at. So first, can you consider a time in your life in which you encountered deep disappointment? What was it that made that experience so painful for you. Take a moment and share that with your family, perhaps even 
help your children know that they too can sit in the dark and cry out to God. But second, if that disappointment was some time in your past, are you now able to see how God may have used it to perhaps recalibrate your heart to his design and desire for you? Have you been able to now look in reverse and see how God has used that to strengthen you, to shape your heart for his glory? And, and finally, perhaps that disappointment is now. Perhaps now you feel like John, alone, forgotten, damaged by disappointment. How does the knowledge, the realization that God is infinitely unchangingly true. How does that realization that your God is the Elijah God, he is the Job God, he is the God of Isaiah, he is Christ, the God of mercy, the God who sees you. How does that strengthen you in these days? Will you pray with me? Father God, we do bless you because you are the God who sees. Though you do not require that we notice you, it is good for our hearts when we do. And so God, all across this nation, wherever you find us bowing before you, wherever people are listening from, I pray that you would be obvious that your comfort would soothe and strengthen and that we would feel that even in these difficult days, you were working out your purposes for your bride, the church, and for those of us who now endure the darkness of these days. Brighten our hearts with your glory, we pray. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.